Before I read our passage, first I want to welcome all of you. My name's John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. Um, the guy you just heard from who was leading us in liturgy earlier uh, is Ryan Dugan. And I have a fun announcement about Ryan. So Ryan has been serving our church for years now, uh, most recently as our young adults director. Uh, he has agreed to stay on after he graduates seminary and serve us as uh, an assistant pastor to our young adults here at Christ the King. So uh, if you see, yeah, let's... Our church is so blessed to have, to have Ryan and really the whole Dugan family, Michaela. Um, we love you guys and are so thankful that you have agreed to stay on and continue serving this body. And uh, please, please do keep praying for uh, Ryan as he graduates uh, in May and then works on his ordination exams. And, uh, and pray for Michaela too as she supports him in that. Um, so thankful for both of y'all. So um, before I read our passage, I want to uh, tell you, just to set it up, uh, I, I heard from um, someone not too long ago that I had, I had once shared the gospel with years ago. And uh, she reached out to me because she was um, going through just a period of, of discouragement and um, sadness even. And uh, I got a text and she was saying, hey, I, um, what do I need to do? I just, I, need, I wanna get back to my old self again. And um, I, I, can, I know what that feels like uh, to kind of want to feel like nostalgic maybe about this kind of golden age in your life when things were, were going well or maybe things felt better, you felt better about yourself. And, um, but my encouragement to her was first to empathize with her, but then secondly to say, hey, um, my hope for you is, is, is ultimately not that you would find a way to get back to your old self. But, but really that you would find that you can become a new self. It, you, you may have seen 2 Corinthians 5 flashed during, uh, in between one of the stanzas of our songs, but I sent, actually sent her that verse. And it's, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Our hope is not that we would find some old better old, old version of our old selves that we can kind of get back to our hope is that in Christ we actually can be made into a new creation there was a, a theologian named um, Augustine from North Africa in the early church uh, and he was known earlier before he became a Christian for for being somebody who um, was very promiscuous in many areas of his life and after he became a Christian, he was walking down the road one day and, and a woman of the city that he had known in his previous life called across the street to him and she said, Augustine, it is I. To which he replied, yes, but it is not I. He had become a new creation. And that's the hope, is that we can actually become something new and God work in our lives. So what I want you to, to know, if maybe you're visiting Christ the King, uh, maybe it's your first time here, you haven't been here too often, I want you to know that you sit in a room full of people who left to themselves are completely hopeless and helpless. Our hope is not that we would get back to some version of our old self. You're in a room full of people who acknowledge that our old selves is not enough. 
But what we do believe is that there is a hope to be found in Jesus. And Jesus really gets into that hope here in John chapter three. So if you want, you can turn in your Bibles in the black, the black Bibles in the pew, page 887. I had John, 1, John 3, 1 through 16 listed. I'm gonna read a bonus verse. I'm gonna read verse 17 as well. So hear now God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you know not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I do pray now that the words of my mouth and that the thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Uh, and Lord, that cannot be true unless you are, unless you're with us because uh, you know you know our hearts. You know how we are prone to sin and to wander from you. So we ask now that by the power of your spirit that you would speak to us through your word and that you would open our hearts to receive it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, two-point sermon today. Get excited. Two points. That's all I got. First, our need revealed. And secondly, our need supplied. We see in this passage both our need revealed and second our need supplied. John paints the picture um, for this scene by telling us about this man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at nighttime, which I think is such a a great detail. Imagine first century, no electricity, probably hear a lot more bugs at night than you would walking around Houston. And this man, Nicodemus, has either firsthand account or has heard secondhand about a rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. And Nicodemus, who is a religious authority in his town, wants to get to the bottom of who this Jesus is. And so he goes out 
under the cloak of darkness and he seeks out Jesus. And Nicodemus, we're told also in verse one, is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. And if you've grown up in the church or around church, particularly maybe Presbyterian churches, we need to be careful at this point when we see that Nicodemus is a Pharisee because it can be very easy to kind of caricaturize the Pharisees in our brains because of the way that they're often talked about being the bad guys or the enemies or the person that is against what Jesus is doing. And we can kind of caricaturize and put little like devil horns on them and be like, ooh, the Pharisees, we don't like them. And just imagine that they're in the corner somewhere like, the Pharisee. Nobody thought of the Pharisees like that. No one. The Pharisees in the first century were respectable. They were the kinds of people that you would want to be like. If you had a daughter, you wanted her you wanted her to come home from college with a Pharisee, okay? Like the Pharisees were likely upper middle class. They, um, they were committed to their faith. They didn't just say you know, that they were religious, they really lived it out. They were committed not just to living out their faith but to really knowing about it. A lot of scholars think that many Pharisees had large portions of scripture memorized, including maybe even like the first five books of the Bible memorized. I don't know if y'all have checked out Deuteronomy lately, but like that's one of them, okay? They were committed. And yet, this guy named Nicodemus comes to Jesus with this great spiritual resume and really with a pretty great opening line to Jesus. We know you're a teacher come from God. It's a pretty pro-Jesus statement to make. But I want you to see that Jesus is not impressed. The the way that I think about uh, how how folks must have imagined Nicodemus in that day, I, th- I think it, it's similar to how we talk about great Christians that we know. You ever heard, heard someone say to you, maybe it's because I'm a pastor, people say this to me more often, you need to meet so-and-so, he's a really great Christian. You need to meet my friend blank, she is a really great woman of God. And I want you to think about, if you hear someone say that, or maybe you have even said that, what are the characteristics that we would associate with that person that we're calling a great Christian? And my suspicion is, is that the characteristics that we would use to describe that great Christian are the exact same characteristics that I just said about Nicodemus. Committed to their faith. They know a lot about it. They don't just know a lot about it, but they're, they're really trying to obediently live it out. They're really respected by people who know them. They hold positions of authority in their life. We would describe that person many times as a great Christian, but Jesus is not 
impressed with that kind of resume. And we see that he's not impressed with Nicodemus. And I, when I say he's not impressed, I don't mean like Jesus is like a high school senior who's cynical and is just not impressed with anything, okay? That's not the kind of not impressed I'm talking about. Jesus is not impressed because he's incredibly loving. Um, maybe you've watched the TV show American Idol. The Traps were really into American Idol in kind of the earlier seasons. And I noticed as the seasons kind of went on, they stopped doing this in some of the more recent iterations of the TV show. But really in those early shows, you would have this person who was going to come and sing in front of Simon Cowell and the other judges. And they would begin to give a bio about this person. And the person would talk about, oh, I've been dreaming about this day my whole life and I've been working so hard and everyone's been telling me I should go on American Idol and now here I am. And they're talking about this. And as they're talking, you start to get the suspicion, oh, this person can't sing. <laughs> this, is, this is not gonna go well. And then they stand before Simon and sing and it's horrible and they get shamed on national TV and they get you know millions of views on YouTube now and it's just there for forever and as you're watching it you can't help but think how has no one in their life told them you're not a good singer Chrissy and I were talking about this and and I was like hey okay here's what I want to do I'm going to sing my very best song that I possibly can and I want you to give me your honest assessment Chrissy's my wife. And so we do this occasionally. I'll sing to her. I'm like, okay, I want, to, I want it one to 10. And I always sing Music of the Night, Phantom of the Opera. It's my go-to song. And so I'll sing it as best as I can. I'll deliver it. I'll change my voice a little bit. He's like, I wonder if I did a little more tinny or with a little more baritone or a little bit. And I've never beaten a six. I got a six one time. I'm really proud of that six. But it's her honest assessment. This is, what you, this is what you really sound like. And because of that, I know not to go on American Idol. <laughs> I know, it's just not happening. But it's actually loving to get an honest assessment about who we really are. And Jesus loves Nicodemus too much, too much to be impressed with him and with his resume. And friends, when we say somebody is a really great Christian, do you know what we do? We tip our hands about what we think is actually important. We tip our hands about what we actually hope in. That our hope is that somebody thinks that I'm great. Or what if, if, I, if only I could be like that great Christian? And people could look at me and see all the good things that I'm doing and have done and be impressed with me. But friends, Jesus loves you too much to be impressed with that or to let that be your hope. Jesus, he confronts Nicodemus's need. He shakes Nicodemus from his self-righteous slumber and so when Nicodemus comes to him, we know you're this great teacher, you're a teacher sent from God. Jesus just, it's almost like a non sequitur in verse three. He just cuts to the chase and says, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He just cuts right to it. You can't even see it unless you're born again. As you are right now, you can't see heaven. 
And that's, that's a fairly offensive thing for a very religious person to have to hear. But Jesus is offending Nicodemus in order to rescue Nicodemus. Jesus does this all throughout his ministry. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, with all these people gathered around him, Jesus proclaims, he's talking about the last day, the day of his judgment, when everyone will be brought before him. He proclaims, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is terrifying. Let's be honest for a second. That, that sermon by Jesus and that point that he makes is a terrifying one, is it not? He's saying, listen, there will be people who come to me on the last day with impressive spiritual resumes. They'll address me as Lord. They will have prophesied in my name. They will have even cast out demons in my name and have done many mighty great works in my name. If you met somebody like that, you might be tempted to call them a great Christian. I've got this friend, he cast out a demon last week. He's a great Christian, you gotta meet him. Jesus is saying, people will come to me and they are going to point at their resume and it will be their doom. You see, he, love, he loves his children too much to be impressed by their resume. He's warning us. This is a passage that's meant to shake us in order to save us and to let us know that we must be born again because we are born into sin. The apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians 2.1, as for you, He's speaking to people who are Christians now. He says, as for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you once walked. So when I was a youth pastor here about 10 years ago, I wanted to illustrate this idea that we are spiritually dead. And I was teaching middle, a middle school Sunday school class. Now, one of the things you need to know that was going on at Christ the King 10 years ago, we had... We had an issue with some of the middle school boys who knew that there was a Skittle dispenser in the office on the second floor, on Miss Sandy's desk. And on Monday mornings, we would come in and the Skittle dispenser would be depleted because you just press the button and Skittles would pour out. I mean, it was great. I love this thing. I wish we, we need to bring it back, by the way. But we had been told, hey, there's, there's middle school boys they're waiting for staff members to go into the office that locks, it's got a little scan cord. They're waiting for someone to scan in and when the door's kind of clo slowly closing, they like shuffle in and like get, get in there and get the Skittles. So watch out for these middle school boys. We gotta tell them to stop. And I, told, I was like, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll tell them to stop, make sure they, they quit. So I'm gonna illustrate Ephesians 2 to them, okay? I'm like, all right, I need somebody to volunteer. Um, someone come... Uh, 
help me do a little teaching illustration. You know, hand shoot up, call on one of the boys. Get up here, buddy. All right. I need you to lay down and pretend like you're dead. And he does this big, like dramatic, like death. And he falls on the ground and like 300 Skittles pour out of his pockets. <laughs> All over the like cement floor upstairs on the third floor. Like click, 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 just poof, everywhere. And I was like, you little sinner. You really are dead in your transgressions. <laughs> but I, I would have them do this and the kids who are really good, I say, I pretend to be dead. And they lay down. Okay, now get up. And the ones who are listening, they would they would stay there. They would lay. I would say, get up, save yourself. Oh no, we gotta. Get, there's a bear coming. You gotta get. And they would they would stay there, dead, because that's what dead people do. And what Paul is saying is that we show up as spiritual stillborns, dead in our sin. Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and saying, you must be born again or you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. All of your spiritual resume is not moving the needle because you're dead. A dead person can't save themselves. And so Jesus in his mercy is shaking Nicodemus so that he can see his need revealed, but also that his need can be supplied for. Second point, our needs supplied. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And it's an interesting illustration that Jesus is using to be born again, because we're not gonna get into the details of this, but when you were born, what did you do? Not a lot. Being born happens a lot more to you than you happen to it, right? And Jesus is saying the same is true with our spiritual birth. He goes on to explain in verse six, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, now these verses have been confusing for some throughout the years. Some have even used these verses to say, look, you've got to, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be baptized. Unless, if you aren't baptized, and you said, you know, you profess faith in Jesus, but you weren't baptized and then you died, you're not a Christian because you have to be born of water and the Spirit. The problem with this is that there's actually people that we see in the Bible that Jesus says are going to heaven who haven't been baptized, namely the thief on the cross. The man who's dying right next to Jesus, who professes a, a very weak profession of faith, really. Just remember me, Lord, when you're in paradise. And Jesus says, today you will be with me. Jesus saves that man. He hasn't been baptized. So the question then is, well, what, what is Jesus talking to? And we, re- we need to remember, whenever we're reading the Bible, we always need to remember the context of who this is being communicated to. And the person that Jesus is speaking to Jesus says, is a teacher of Israel. He's an Old Testament expert. And when we go back and look in the Old Testament where spirit and water are talked about, we see passages like Ezekiel 36, where God is describing how he will save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in Ezekiel 36. This prophetic message, and I want you to listen for those two words, water and spirit, that Jesus is referring to. You have to be born of the water and spirit. Because Ezekiel, the prophet, uses the same, the same metaphors. 
This is God speaking through his prophet Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Side note, it's one of the reasons we sprinkle when we baptize. Side note, ended. Okay. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. You see what God is saying that he'll do for all kinds of people, by the way, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just for Jews like Nicodemus, not just for people from Israel, not just people from America, people from all over the world, all the way back in the Old Testament. God already had this plan. He had this plan. And he says that what he's going to do with them first is he will cleanse them with water. Cleanse them wash all their sin away so that they are completely acceptable to him. Not because they've done a bunch of work, but because God has done it. But secondly, he'll cleanse them with water and secondly, give them a new heart or a new spirit, he says. He'll give them a new life. This means that a person actually is going to change into a new you in Christ. Jesus describes this in verse eight of John three. Again, using a metaphor, talking about the wind. He's like, you know, you can't see the wind, but when it's blowing, you can see the effects of it. And he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. When someone is born again, they're given new life, a new heart. God takes the heart of stone from them and gives them a heart of flesh. There, is a, there are changes that come about because of God's work in them. I, I remember when my brother became a Christian. My, my brother um, kind of pushed against what my, my parents and our church had taught him for a lot of his kind of adolescence into college. And I think it was maybe his junior, between his junior and senior year, my mom's here today, by the way, hey mom. I think it was between his junior and senior year of college, he went to work at a, um, at a ranch in Wyoming where he was the only English speaker at the ranch. So didn't have many people to talk to, didn't have an iPhone or an iPod, just kind of free that. And he decided he was gonna train for a marathon and began ran, running um, in the Grand Teton Mountains there. And he said, as he ran, all, all the songs, all the hymns from that red hymnal, they started coming back to him. The songs that we would sing gathered around our breakfast table in the morning when he was so grumpy and did not want to do that at all. They, they had found their way into his body. And as he ran in the beauty of creation, it started to just kind of leak out into his mind. And he started reading his Bible again and he like he was born again I remember he's eight years older than me I remember as a kid going to pick him up from the airport and I was like this is I have a new brother this is a new person he has been born again 
And Jesus is saying that this is, this is what happens. You, you can't, you maybe don't see the spirit with your eyes, just like you don't see the wind with your eyes, but you see that there are actually ways that the spirit comes and affects somebody who's been born again. The spirit bears its fruit in us, like the apostle Paul describes. And we begin to become people who are gentle and self-controlled and patient, and peaceful, and kind, and joyful, and loving, and faithful. And note, it's, it's not the fruit of Nicodemus. It's not the fruit of John Trapp. It's the fruit of the Spirit at work in one who has been born again. And I want you to see that the one who is acting in that is God. The one who's acting in Ezekiel 36, as God describes all that he's going to gather, listen to everything that God is going to be doing. He's the one who gathers his people. He's the one who cleans them. He gives them a new heart. He gives them a new spirit. He removes the heart of stone. He puts his spirit within them. God does the work. He gets the glory. He turns out he's the hero of our story and not us. Praise be to him. It goes right along with what John says in the prologue of this book, in John chapter one. Remember I said it serves almost like a symphonic overture where we get these themes and threads that John's gonna explore later in the book. In John 1.13, he begins talking about birth. And John says, a Christian is born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. In other words, a Christian is not born by the will of their resume, the will of man, the will of the flesh, but of God. He is the one who does it. He is the one who gets the glory. And it's for all kinds of people. There's a pastor um, who I really admire named Joe Novenson. He's kind of a hero of mine. And he tells about when he was sharing the gospel with somebody and the person said, okay, Pastor Joe, someone who's not a believer, said, Pastor Joe, tell me, who do you think gets into heaven? And, and Joe quoted John 3.16, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may have everlasting life, not perish, have everlasting life. To which the, the person responded, I, I, I've heard that, but that just sounds so narrow. You have, to believe, you have to believe in Jesus. What, like, and Joe said, okay, well, who do you think gets in heaven? He said, well, I just don't think it's that narrow. I think that it's, it's all kinds of, of good people in the world. There's all kinds of good people. There's people um, you know, who are, are kind to their neighbors and they're, they're not really judge, like judgmental people. They're just accepting of others and... People who are charitable and live their life for like really good causes. And there's, there's all kinds of people who don't believe in Jesus who are doing those kinds of things. How could you be so narrow? What about the good people? And, and, and Pastor Joe wisely, I mean, he, he heard them, but then he responded, I hope you, I hope you know how narrow your way sounds. 
if it's only for good people, then what about the bad people like me? What about sinners? Friends, if only good people got into heaven, the only human who would be in heaven is Jesus. And the rest of us would be lost. Jesus is shaking Nicodemus. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Don't trust in your resume. Don't trust in your righteousness. You must be born again. How do we get this new birth that gives eternal life? Again, Jesus is speaking to an Old Testament expert. And so he uses a reference from the Old Testament. It's kind of a strange story from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. In verse 14, he references it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. He's referencing a moment in Israel's history in Numbers 21, where God was disciplining his people who time and time and time again were rejecting him, were wanting to go back to Egypt, to the place where they had been enslaved. And God sends poisonous snakes that come and begin to bite people of Israel and some of them begin to die and in his mercy God tells Noah or Noah God tells Moses Noah wasn't there he was dead God told Moses take a bronze serpent erect it in the midst of the people and if they will simply look at the serpent then they'll be saved they will live And we're not, we're not told if every person who was bitten did that. There may have been someone who said, that's, that's so narrow. Look at that. Why is that serpent the only thing that's gonna save me? Why should I look at that? I heard there's a doctor down the road who's got an antidote. I'm gonna talk to him. Friends, God in his mercy time and time again throughout the history of his people is giving us a way that we might be spared. And Jesus is saying, just like Moses, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And when he says the son of man, he's talking about himself. And when he says lifted up, he is talking about when he is going to go to the cross for the ways that we look to our own self-righteousness and our own resumes to save us, for the ways that we reject him and hate him. He goes to the cross and is lifted up on the cross so that any who would look to him can be born again. Nicodemus hears this and he asks, it's the last thing we hear Nicodemus say in this passage, by the way, verse nine, how can these things be? It's a great question to ask Jesus, by the way. Mm, It's a good question to ask him because Jesus will answer that question. How can these things be? Because what we see in this story is that this actually isn't the end of Nicodemus. Later on in the book of John, in John 19, when the son of man has been lifted up, so that we can be cleansed of our sins and given a new heart of flesh to follow him. When the son of man has done that, there's a small group of people who are taking his body and going to lay it in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. 
And one of the people that John makes special attention to list as being present is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is there. Nicodemus is there because he's very likely following Jesus. He's burying Jesus. And I can't help but think that as Nicodemus is laying Jesus's very body in the grave, could he not have thought of those words that that physical mouth had once said to him only a little bit of time before as he lays him in the grave? Nicodemus, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, that's not narrow. Whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you are here this morning and you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, please don't trust in your own resume to get into heaven. Please don't trust in your own righteousness for your own hope. There is a way that is offered to you and all that the Lord Jesus asks you to do is to look upon him in faith for your hope. In that Sermon on the Mount, when he says, all these people are gonna come before me and they're gonna say, you know, cast out demons and did these mighty works. Did you, see, did you see what he said about who does get in? He says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know what the will of his Father, he says later, he says, this is the will of my Father who is in heaven, that you would believe on him whom he has sent. That's the will, that's it, believe and be born again. And the reason that I read the, the, the 17th verse of John 3 to y'all, I wanted, I wanted our believers in the room to hear that this morning. I wanted you to hear that and re be reminded that your heavenly father does not look on you with condemnation, but with adoration and delight. He does not condemn you for the ways that your marriage is struggling. He does not condemn you for how maybe your children have, have walked away from the faith for a time. He does not condemn you for your addictions. He does not condemn you for all of the ways that you are struggling right now. And we're struggling. He does not condemn you. But he welcomes you to lean in to the work that his son has done on the cross for you and to have the joy of his salvation restored to you. He offers you new life. Lean into that new life. Friends, let the spirit work in your life and participate in that work with God's help pushing against your addictions, seeking to love your spouse, pursuing your children, but all with God's help. Not to build your own resume, but because you have the righteousness of Christ. Rest in that today. Please rest in that. Like maybe actually rest today on the Sabbath because of the work of Jesus. This is how committed our God is.
for you to have new life, that he went to the grave to purchase it for you. Let's pray to him now. Father, we give you thanks. Thanks that you did love this world, this world that hated you. Lord, forgive us for thinking that somehow we could be great in and of ourselves. Instead, we pray that you would help us to turn our hearts towards you, our great Savior and Redeemer. May we embrace lives of, um, of weakness and dependence upon you. And we ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.